This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Toshidele, and welcome once more to the series of programs on the Buddhist path to enlightenment as described in Tibetan Buddhism. We're coming to the end of it, having gone through nearly all of the six perfections the Bodhisattva trains in. Generosity, ethics, patience, joyous effort or enthusiasm, concentration and wisdom. Last week we started talking about concentration since we've gone through the other four. In particular, we're discussing calm abiding, the kind, special kind of concentration that keeps the mind on an object without it wanting to move, or the meditator becoming uncomfortable for as long as the meditator likes. Last time we spoke about the difficulty of developing calm abiding and also the prerequisites that would make it easier for us if we decided to go into retreat. We talked about choosing the right place, giving up desire, generating contentment, keeping our activities to a minimum, keeping ethics, and stopping disturbing conceptions. The right place will have five qualities. Do you remember what they are? Well, it should be a place where it's easy to get whatever basics we need, like food, water, and so on. It should also be safe, without dangers like wild animals, robbers and so on, ready to make one's life a misery. It has to be a healthy place where the air and water is clean and the environment pleasant. Preferably it should be high up, like on a cliff or a mountain. Then once we have such a place, we need good friends to support us physically with food and so on, and also other retreatants to keep our enthusiasm and effort strong. Meditating on one's own for long periods of time can become very difficult for beginners. And finally, the area should be quiet and we must be knowledgeable about how to meditate on calm abiding. Having a lot of desire for samsaric objects will just create an obstacle to our meditation. So we are advised to have very little desire and instead be content with whatever we have. We have to give up all our usual activities like work, socializing and so on, even studying anything but Buddhist text is frowned upon. We also have to keep whatever commitments we have taken as purely as possible, for the foundation for developing both calm abiding and special insight is a mind well curbed and under control, focused only on virtue. And in line with that, we have to be mindful to cut the disturbing conceptions as they arise, If we are trying to concentrate on an object, but the mind always flits off to desirous thoughts about our partner, we are not going to get calm abiding in six months, or at all, and that's for sure. So, okay, now we've gathered all the requisites and have settled into a nice retreat spot, now what? Now we need a meditation cushion and some instructions on what we should be doing, and the obstacles we are going to come across. But before we get into that, let's take a moment to set our motivation for this program today, so that we can even make it a cause to develop calm abiding on our way to enlightenment. What is your motivation? Just check it out, and if it's something insignificant, like listening just to pass time, change it to the wish to gain enlightenment, not only for yourself, 
but so that all beings can be free of suffering. This will make the program really very beneficial to many beings and will become a cause for your enlightenment in due course. Thank you. Now when we speak about doing a retreat on calm abiding, it supposes that the meditator has already completed meditation practices and has a strong familiarity with all the other topics we've covered on the path so far. These are not absolutely necessary to attain calm abiding. After all, in many other traditions, both Buddhist and non-Buddhist, you can attain calm abiding without meditating on the previous topics. But they are very useful in understanding the whole path to enlightenment. And also, if you do meditate on them first, by the time you come to calm abiding, your meditation practice will, will be already be quite powerful. It may well make the time you have to spend on achieving calm abiding much shorter. How long will it take to get there? Well, that really depends on your mind and karma. It can take anywhere up to six months if you're really well prepared, but could take much longer, even a year or more. I know one monk who wanted to achieve calm abiding and initially did a retreat for around three months. But his support ran out and I think his mind also started playing up and he abandoned the practice. However, he did go back into retreat some time later and spent something like six months on it, though I don't think he quite achieved the level he was expecting. So it all depends on your situation and your mind. I personally haven't done a retreat on calm abiding, so most of what I'm going to say in this program is from what I've been told and from what I've read. If you are going to do such a retreat, you most definitely need a teacher who has practical experience, because things can become tricky, as you will imagine if you spend an unaccustomed length of time by yourself just sitting in meditation. But anyway, let's have a look at what the teachings say about such a thing. Say it's the first day of your retreat and you're starting to meditate. What should you do? Well, by the time you come to a long, calm, abiding meditation, you should already have a strong meditation practice going. Most people who haven't meditated before have very little show of sitting for many hours each day for months on end focusing their minds. If you have a strong practice going, you will already be well versed in meditation posture, but will go through the right posture now for those who don't know. In other meditations, you can walk or stand, but in this meditation, a sitting posture is mandatory because you're supposed to be focusing your mind for long periods of time, and that's very difficult to do if you're wandering around the place. The best way of sitting is in the seven-point posture with the legs folded in the lotus position as you will have seen statues or paintings of, the, of Lord Buddha. Each foot rests on the opposite leg's thigh. Of course, for us Westerners, this can be very difficult, as we don't sit cross-legged from childhood as many of the Easterners do. But we can learn if we're young enough. I can't do it, and I think with my age and creakiness, it will be almost impossible to do. So if we can't do it, the half-lotus or just cross-legged posture is okay. Actually, you can even meditate in a chair, though you have to make sure it's not so comfortable that it keeps sending you to sleep. But the full lotus is the best, because it locks you into position and your body will not be able to tilt and fall. You'll be able to sit in the same position for hours on end. 
And my teacher, who was a Tibetan, said that once you get used to it, it's the most comfortable position to sit in. You should sit on a cushion so that your rear is slightly raised above your legs. This is especially important for Westerners. I heard of one Theravada master, a Burmese I think he was, who refused to let his disciples sit on cushions. Everyone had to sit flat on the floor. Not only did it cause greater agony for his Western students, but many later developed serious back problems. So we should make sure our backsides are higher than our knees. The Tibetans say that if you sit in the full lotus position, the two legs symbolize the two wings of method and wisdom that you need for full enlightenment. Method means bodhicitta, loving-kindness, compassion and so on, and wisdom means the wisdom you get from special insight that directly sees the nature of reality. But continuing with the posture, your hands rest in your lap, the right on top of the left, and the two thumbs meeting to form a circle, which they say preserves the energy of the body. Again, this can commonly be seen in representations of the Buddha. The two thumbs touching symbolize concentration and the achievement of liberation or enlightenment that comes from such concentration. Most important of all, your back must be straight. In a gross explanation, if your back is slumped, your mind will almost inevitably get dull and sleepy and you'll not be able to concentrate properly. While if your back is too rigid, the mind will not be able to settle down. So it should be as though there's a string going from the top of your head to the ceiling, which is just keeping you upright, not letting you slump, but also not pulling you up. The spinal vertebrae should be like coins resting on one another. A more subtle explanation is that consciousness is supported by the subtle energies that run in channels parallel to your backbone. If the back is straight, those energies can move more freely than if the back is slumped over. This and a better flow of blood through the straight body makes it much easier to concentrate. I must emphasize, though, that this is the most important point in any sting meditation. Always keep your back straight. The next posture point is your face. Keep your mouth, jaw and tongue in a natural relaxed position, although the tip of the tongue is usually placed just behind the top teeth to control the flow of saliva. And the mouth should not be neither clamped shut nor wide open. Just keep it natural. Tilt your head slightly forward. Again it will naturally tilt if you imagine that string to the ceiling very lightly pulling your head up into position. The top of the head will go up and the chin will naturally tuck in just a little. Then normally we say you can either close your eyes or keep them slightly open. Keeping them open is supposed to be better. They should be then directed down the length of the nose to a point in front of you where they stay fixed in a relaxed fashion. And finally, your shoulders should be square with the arms a little way away from the body so that air can circulate between them and the body. If you tuck them in too much, you may find yourself nodding off. So this is the basic posture for long periods of meditation. Another advantage of this posture is that when people see you sitting like this, they generally don't disturb you. Of course, in a calm abiding retreat, you will probably be by yourself in your own hut or cave. But if anybody else does come to visit you and saw you sitting in this position, they will be much less motivated to disturb you than if you were just sitting in a chair.
One great Tibetan master, Lama Tsongkhapa, said that included in this seven-point posture is another point that comes from examining one's mind. He recommended that if we sit in this posture and then examining our mind see turbulence or distraction, we should focus on the breath until the mind has calmed down. Then we can continue with whatever other meditation we intend doing. I know that in some traditions, especially the Vipassana tradition, people are encouraged to sit for long periods of time every day. But the Tibetans go the other way. They say it's better in the beginning to do many short stints rather than a few long sessions. In a normal Tibetan retreat, people will do three or four sessions a day, each two to three hours long. But in a calm abiding retreat, it is recommended we do 10 to 20 sessions a day, each of 20 to 30 minutes, until our practice is strong enough to continue for long periods without the mind getting dull. If we try long two-hour sessions, the mind will very easily get dull and tired. A dull mind is one of the obstacles that we're going to have to overcome to developing calm abiding. There are four others we have to keep a watch out for, so now let's look at the five obstacles and their eight antidotes. In the meditation, we're going to have to apply ourselves well to noticing these obstacles and getting rid of them, because we don't, if we don't, we could just habituate our minds to them, and then they will be very hard to eradicate. So what are the five obstacles? Well, the first one is laziness. This occurs when the mind loses its interest and sense of enjoyment in meditating on calm abiding. We might become bored and lethargic. When we talked about joyous effort, you may remember we defined three lazinesses. The laziness of procrastination, the laziness of attraction to non-virtuous objects, and the laziness of inadequacy. And any of these can make themselves felt in our practice of calm abiding. We can experience a mind that revolts against meditation and just wants to put off practice to another time, and that's the laziness of procrastination. Also, our mind can keep veering off to objects of attachment, and that is the laziness of attraction to non-virtuous objects. And if after a while of meditating it becomes difficult and we give up saying we are too useless to develop calm abiding, it's an example of the laziness of inadequacy. Then the next obstacle is forgetfulness, and this refers to both the object we are meditating on and the instructions about how we should meditate. Perhaps we didn't pay too much attention in the first place. The third obstacle is actually two, and they are the worst enemies of concentration. They are called by different names in different texts, but here we are going to use laxity and excitement. Both have gross and subtle levels. In gross laxity, the object you are meditating on is stable, but unclear. This is different from sleepiness, where the image is lost completely. In subtle laxity, the image is both clear and stable, but it's missing intensity. The concentration is strong and the object is clear, but some of the fine focus is gone. Here the mind has shed some of its energy and so relaxed its hold on the object. It becomes a little slack. Without subtle laxity, the mind stays very sharp and clear and the image appears intensely and stably to it. Actually, subtle laxity is the main obstacle to attaining calm abiding. It is very difficult to recognize, but is so insidious that people have become convinced that they have reached calm abiding when all in fact they have done is fallen victim to this subtle laxity 
and they're getting more and more used to mental depression and dullness. Hear more great content like this podcast by becoming a supporter on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89. Excitement is a particular type of distraction based on objects of attachment. For instance, when you're sitting in meditation and your mind wanders off to your favorite chocolate ice cream and you sit for the next few minutes salivating over the thought, the meditation has been invaded by excitement. Excitement is not a distraction based on objects we don't like or that we are aggressive to. You may, for instance, remember a fight you were in with someone you don't like. If that pulls you away from the meditation, it's not excitement because the object was not attractive to you. We can also be distracted by objects of virtue, like a kind deed we did for someone. In the classic example, you may have helped an old lady cross the road or carried her heavy bag home for her, and this pops up in your mind in the middle of a session. This is distraction, but it's not excitement. Although we distinguish excitement out like this, all the distractions, not only excitement, have to be eliminated before we can get calm abiding. Excitement is made special because it's the one that takes our mind over the most insidiously. Of all the distractions, excitement is the worst because it seems to take over the mind. For instance, you're sitting in meditation and suddenly the idea of your partner pops up in your mind. It's likely that the mind will quickly be taken over and you may find yourself dreaming over your partner for a good long time. Usually this doesn't happen with other forms of distraction. We can recognize them more easily, and they don't stay so long in the mind. I mean, who wants to sit for hours on end dreaming of their enemy? Usually our enemy will spend much less time in our mind than our partner. Now you know sometimes you might be sitting in meditation, and suddenly you realize that you've completely lost the object of meditation. Say you were concentrating on an image of the Buddha, and you came to realize that for the previous ten minutes, Your mind had been completely on your beautiful partner and you hadn't even considered the Buddha image. It had been completely lost to your mind. That is gross excitement. Subtle excitement happens when the object is still clear, but a subtle part of the mind below the level of conceptual thought is running away to an object of desire. Taking our previous example, we might still be focused on the Buddha image and know what we're doing, But like water moves under ice, this mind moves surreptitiously beneath the surface to cause disruption. Non-application is the fourth obstacle, and it simply means that when any of the obstacles arise before us, we don't apply the antidote to get rid of it. And then the fifth obstacle is applying an antidote when we no longer have, have to. In other words, when you're no longer bothered by laxity or excitement, you don't have to apply the antidotes anymore. So those are the five obstacles we have to overcome in our meditation. They don't only afflict the mind during a concentration meditation, but can do in any meditation. How can we get rid of them? The texts recommend eight antidotes. Faith, aspiration, effort, pliancy, mindfulness, awareness, application and equanimity. Let's look at these in relation to the obstacle that each counteracts. Laziness has four antidotes. Faith, aspiration, effort and pliancy. Laziness is said to be the worst obstacle to the development of calm abiding and the thing that most easily makes any calm abiding we have developed 
to decline. To counteract laziness, we can meditate on the advantages of calm abiding and thus re-energize ourselves, giving ourselves great impetus to practice again. For instance, developing calm abiding, we will attain bliss and clarity of mind. Our mind will be so stable that we'll be able to develop clairvoyance and to do magical feats particularly to benefit others. We will in fact be able to do many things that ordinary people will find impossible or amazing. Some lamas with calm abiding have been able to propel themselves through the air as though flying. The monastery I stayed at for nearly two years in the south of India used to be the biggest monastery in Tibet before the monks escaped and re-established themselves in India. The college I belong to is called Gomang. Now Gom means door and Mang means many, so it's called many doors. The reason for that was that in ancient times this college had many highly realized monks who had attained calm abiding. They did not need to use the doors but could pass through solid objects like walls easily. Therefore the college became known as many doors. When we develop calm abiding and special insight, we'll be able to do feats just like that as well. Also, a Korean monk I know a little also told me about a retreat he did in the Himalayas in India. He said that nearby a couple of Tibetan monks were also doing a retreat and he used to visit them occasionally. One day, one of the monks walked straight through the wall. Of course, the Korean monk was surprised and asked how the, Tib- the Tibetan monk did it. The Tibetan just told him to think of emptiness and to walk through the wall. The Korean monk concentrated for a while on emptiness, but when he tried to go through the wall, he just banged his head. So that's the difference between ourselves and someone who has calm abiding. Another advantage of calm abiding is that the delusions are greatly lessened and we are able to get realizations much more quickly than if we didn't have such a concentrated mind. Now, thinking on these benefits, we can counteract the three lazinesses that encourage us to put off the practice and that will lead to a strong aspiration to attain calm abiding. With that aspiration comes the energy to put the effort into gaining calm abiding and so again laziness will be averted. That effort will lead to a pliancy of body and mind, which is the indication that we've made it. So that is how to counteract laziness with a four, faith, aspiration, effort and pliancy. Then the antidote to forgetting the instruction or the object is mindfulness, a factor that doesn't let the mind let go of its object. Usually in calm abiding, mindfulness and awareness go together, the one keeping the mind on the object and the other watching for when it goes off somewhere else. So we're going to use the image of the Buddha as our object of concentration for calm abiding. At first it's a bit strange to the mind and we have to think on it quite strongly to establish it in our internal world. Maybe we use a picture of the Buddha which we look on again and again. Then internally we become a little familiar with it and so we start concentrating on it without looking at the picture. Now mindfulness comes in. It helps us to remember to concentrate on the image in our mind and not let the mind wander off to other things. Then as we become more and more familiar the habit of mindfulness is strengthened and remembering the image gets easier and easier. Now mindfulness becomes strong and we can easily bring the mind, the image to mind like a hungry man brings food to mind, as one text puts it. 
So mindfulness has this feature of not allowing the mind to be distracted to other objects. Mindfulness keeps the mind on the image, but awareness is like a spy that watches out for when the mind wanders off the object through laxity or excitement. As I said, these two, mindfulness and awareness, work in tandem, the one keeping the mind on the object and the other watching to see when it goes walkabout. Then awareness brings the mind back and mindfulness puts it back on the object and tries to keep it there again. These two are the main antidotes to laxity and excitement. However, we have to watch out that we, don't, that we don't get caught up with mindfulness and awareness and apply them when they're no longer needed. It has to be a balancing act. When our awareness realizes laxity or excitement is arising, the first thing we should do is tighten concentration. However, if we tighten too much, excitement will arise and we will then have to loosen it again. But loosening too much gives a chance for laxity to arise, so then we will have to tighten concentration again. See what I mean by a balancing act. It's like tuning a musical instrument. Make the string too tight and the sound will be an awful ping, but loosen it too much and it will be an equally awful twang. Get it just right and you will make beautiful music. Getting the concentration right is like that. So that's the first thing to try when laxity or excitement arise. If that doesn't work and laxity still arises, we should try at making the object more brilliant and focus harder on its details because the mind sinks and becomes too withdrawn. We need methods to make it more light and joyful. If focusing on the details of the object doesn't do anything, we can stop meditating on the image for a while and think on the subjects like our good fortune on having a precious human rebirth or on the qualities of the Buddha. We can also think about our positive actions and rejoice in them, anything that will make the mind more light and happy. But we do not, of course, think about objects of attachment that might bring us some happiness. Now, if that doesn't work, there's one other thing we can do, and that is imagine the mind is a bright spot of light in the middle of your chest at your heart chakra. The light shoots up through the top of your head into space where it becomes like the sun radiating, radiating everywhere. That should help, but if the mind is still heavy and unresponsive, it's time to get up and take a walk or splash water on your face. Relax for a bit, and then when invigorated again, we can come back to the meditation. In the case of excitement, the mind has become too hyped up, too happy-happy. This can happen if we concentrate too hard and are too tight in the meditation. Now we need to become more down-to-earth, so we can consider karma and impermanence, the sufferings of cyclic existence, those who are having a hard time in the world through natural disasters or lack of resources and so on, anything to make the mind calm down and be more stable. If that doesn't work, we can concentrate on the breath, counting up to 21, and then when we can do that successfully, up to 100. If the mind still doesn't settle, again we'll have to leave the meditation cushion take a brisk walk or do some physical activity that brings, down, brings us down a little before returning to the meditation. Eventually in the practice, we will come to a point where laxity and excitement no longer arise. This, of course, will be quite a long way into the meditation practice after we've been through many of the stages and have become quite adept at it. Now we don't have to apply the antidotes anymore because the obstacles are not there. But it is possible that we still have worries that they will come back and so keep applying the antidotes. This actually becomes a fault in itself and a hindrance to calm abiding. 
so we have to stop applying them and practice equanimity. So equanimity is the antidote to over-application. Now we've covered the obstacles that will arise as we try to develop calm abiding. We have to be very careful looking out for them and heading them off if we want to be successful. I hope this hasn't confused you too much, but now it's time to go. Thank you for joining me today, and please come back again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential from this program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.